The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. We are living in the midst of one of the most turbulent, controversial, confusing, contentious moments that many of us can remember. There are so many people that have so many strong opinions about so many issues today. And what happens is that as Christians, we need not only grace and mercy to know how to think and how to live in these times, but more specifically, to know how to think and live Christianly in these times. What would it look like to live and think as a Christian, and how is that different than a non-Christian. The, the question in front of us, therefore, is what do Christians do with their lips and with their lives to declare the excellencies of Christ in the political sphere? That's why we're put on this planet, to declare the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. How do we do that in the sphere of politics? government? How do we call attention, like we said last week, to the war for the soul and to the glory of God among the governing authorities? This is not a text this week that we chose because Governor Waltz mandated mass. It's just the next text. I believe that the Lord loves us and wants us not to be guided by the winds of worldly thinking, but by every word that comes from his mouth. So we're going to read this text, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. We're going to pray. We're going to state the main point, walk through the outline, and see what God has for us. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Let's pray. This is your word, Father. God, I pray that you would give us a grace to really listen, to really lean in, so that this text would define us and shape us and fill us and make us and mold us more into your image, that we would have your wisdom, that we would think your thoughts after you, that we would have your heart that would be sold out for your glory and supremacy, that you would give us the ability to love one another, to honor everyone, and above everything, to, to look into your word, to listen to you, 
as those who fear you more than anything else or anyone else. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to read the main point of this passage. You can see it there in verse 13. Everything else is an exposition of it. Christians glorify God in the political sphere when they submit to their rulers for the Lord's sake. I want to draw that with my hands. Christians glorify God in the political sphere when they submit to their rulers for the Lord's sake. So it's starting by saying we we exist to glorify God. How do you do that? How do you do that as citizens of heaven? Do citizens of heaven submit to the rulers of earth? We got a high king in heaven. So does that mean we don't have to, we can just disregard the rulers of this world? No, he says, you glorify God when you humbly put yourself under earthly rulers, not for their sake, not because they're worthy, but because he is. Now, as you walk through then what this text says, it's two movements. In the first one, verses 13 to 16, he lays out what he means when he says, be subject. Be subject to the governing authorities for the Lord's sake. What does that mean? And then secondly, he expands beyond that in verse 17 to say, how do we then interact with everyone? Not just rulers, but all people, including Christians and God. That's verse 17. So in the first point, verses 13 to 16, here's what he lays out. When he calls you to be subject to the governing authorities, He wants to tell you four things. Number one, the the meaning of submission, the object of submission, the reasons for submission, and the nature of submission. We'll walk through what that means. Meaning of it, object of it, reasons for it, and nature of it. Look with me first at the meaning of submission. Submission refers to humbling, humbly putting yourself under the authority of another. So here, he's saying, when you look at the governing authorities, citizens of heaven don't disregard them. They humbly put themselves under the civil authority, under the governing authority. That's what it means. And in standard New Testament teaching, it's saying this is a posture or a readiness or a disposition while you're in this place of submission to obey, to obey. Listen to Romans chapter 13. This is just standard New Testament teaching. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. When you resist authority, you're resisting what God is doing, he's saying. 
So don't be misguided in thinking, I'm obeying God, therefore I'm not obeying the governing authorities. So you obey God by obeying the governing authorities. Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. What does that mean? To be obedient. That's what he says. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy to all people. That would revolutionize social media. Show perfect courtesy to all people. The parallel even in 1 Peter 3 is also instructive when you think of submit and the word obey because 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 1 and 5 use the word submit and then the word that's used in parallel in verse 6 is obey. So Peter doesn't want to give you any idea that citizens of heaven can disregard the rulers of earth. No, you humbly put yourself under their authority. Why? So when you think meaning, let's go to object first before we go to reason. The object of submission here I find so incredibly helpful. The ESV makes it sound like, it's a bad translation in my opinion, the ESV makes it sound like the object of submission is submit to every human institution. But the word institution isn't there. That's not what Peter is saying. Literally, the object of submission in the original language is submit, be subject, to every human creature. Why does he say that? He's not saying be subject to every human being because every human being doesn't have authority over you. He says submit yourself to every human creature and then he explains what he means to the emperor as one who's supreme and to governors as those sent by him. And what he's definitely saying is that remember these rulers are mere humans. Remember in Rome there's this cult of opinion that says Caesar is deity and Peter right from the get-go says yes submit to every human authority. And right there you know it's not God, it's not the Lord. It's putting him right in his place from the get-go. Don't forget, not divine, human. Fundamentally human, not divine. He ends on the same note in verse 17 like we're going to see when he says, honor everyone and at the end, honor the emperor. Same word used for every person made in the image of God honor him the same way, because he's just a human made in the image of God. Now, when you think through meaning, humbly put yourself under the authority of another and understanding it's just humans, not God. So it's not a God-like submission. It is God calling you to submit to another human authority. Why? Now he goes to the reasons for submission. He gives three. Number one, do it for the Lord's sake. Number two, do it because government generally is a good gift that punishes evil and praises good. 
and three, because it's the Lord's will. And as a result, foolish people will be silenced. Let's go through those one at a time. Look at verse 13. Why do this? Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. You submit to rulers, not because they're worthy, but because he's worthy, not for their sake, but for his sake. So he's saying, you don't do an end run around the Lord. It is the will of God to submit to the will of the government, but remember who you're doing it for. Not for the glory of Caesar, but for the glory of of Christ. Remember who you are. Remember why you exist. Remember what you're doing this for is for Him. When you're putting yourself under these human authorities, do it for the ultimate authority or else you're going to do it wrong. Now verse 14 gives the second reason for submitting, not just because you're doing it for the Lord's sake. Why would he institute government? What would be his design in this? Answer, verse 14. Or to governors as sent by him, why? To punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. God institutes government fallen people ruling over fallen people in the midst of a fallen world. Sounds like a bad recipe, but saying government is generally a good gift. It's going to keep society from descending into anarchy where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And in general, throughout history, what happens is that there's this effect in civic society that good is commended and evil is punished. That is why God institutes government. Punish evildoers, praise those who do good. There's enough common grace that God is giving to civil society that good on the whole is going to be lifted up, evil on the whole is going to be punished or put in its place. Now, maybe some of you wonder, why does he use the word praise those who do good? It's it's really just a word for here, commending, and it's what civil government did. We have some of this today. We had more of it back then where ancient governments would find ways to commend those who worked for the good of the community through statues or plaques or memorials or name things in their honor. Literally, it's look at what this person did for the good of society. Let's remember their name. Let's hold high. Let's praise their work, what they were doing. And it was for the sake of good. Now, When you look at the third reason, why would God want you to be, as a citizen of heaven, putting yourself under a ruler of earth? Verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So here's the logic. Not that Christians should be perceived as those for whom you've got the will of God always against the will of the government. No. This is the will of God that you submit to the will of the government, and when you do that, 
people who are foolish looking at Christians right now and are saying you are against the civic good because you will not bow the knee to Caesar. You will not call him God, therefore you're against the government. And Peter is saying when you give them plenty of evidence to the contrary as you work for the good of the civic society, you will be able to silence people who foolishly say Christians are anti-good, anti-government. Just because they won't bow the knee to Caesar doesn't mean they won't humbly submit. So what happens is that rather than foolish people slandering Christians as evildoers and anarchists, you're going to see Christians are for the common good. Christians, in some ways, should be the best citizens, not the worst. Now, before we apply this and ask the question, does that mean we just totally trust the civil authority, mindlessly obey them? We need to get to the nature of what submission is before we apply this. So what is the nature of submission? It's all found in verse 16. What kind of submission is this? Verse 16, three ways that we submit. I don't like the word live, by the way. Live as people who are free or living as servants of God. Again, unfortunate translation, though there's no verb in the original language, which means you have to supply it. And rather than just coming up with a generic word like living, we're supposed to go back to the original verb and supply that because we're not talking about living in general, we're talking about submission in particular. So I think you should translate verse 16 this way. Submit as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but submitting as servants of God. So how do you submit? Three ways. Submit as free people, submit as good people, submit as enslaved people to God. First, we submit because we're free. What an amazing thought. Christians are those who are not slavishly bound to government because we are citizens of heaven. How did we get that? We're purchased. Our freedom was purchased by the blood of Christ. He doesn't have to expand on this because he just said it in chapter 1, verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. In other words, why do you submit? Because the one who purchased you and made you free is saying, submit. That's why. It's for the Lord's sake, the one who bought you with the price. You're not your own. Therefore, you're free to obey him and submit. The tone of the submission all changes because it's not this slavish fear, it's this freedom in Christ that says, I know who rules me and it ain't you. And I, I obey him by submitting to you. He calls me to do it. He bought me for this reason, so I obey 
can't belong to the governing authorities. I belong to Christ, therefore I can submit with dignity and freedom, not slavish fear. Second, Christians submit as good people. I love this. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Because you could say, I'm free, which means I can do whatever I want. He's saying, don't submit like those who are sold out for evil. You could join a corrupt system, and you could work the system so that you could benefit from it in a dishonest way. He's saying, that's not why you're doing this. You're not doing this to to get the, the getting while it's good. No, 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 no. You're doing this because you're sold out for good. You want to infuse civic society with the goodness of Christ. The moral beauty we talked about back in verse 12. We're sold out as those who want to display the beauty of Christ in this civic society. Sold out for good. Third, Christians submit as those who are servants of God. We submit to the government because it's the will of God, because we're servants of God, because we've been bought by Christ. It means the whole disposition and tone and tenor of our submission is going to look different. Not as if we're currying favor with the government by the way that we submit. The way that we submit should be tall and proud and strong as those who know who they are in Christ. And know, I'm doing this not for you, but for him. That's how we submit. That matters because when we ask the question, does that mean that we just mindlessly obey the government? Does that mean that we simply, totally trust them and do whatever they say, no matter what? No way. When you ask the question, do Christians ever disobey the government? Is it ever the will of God to not submit to the government? The answer is clearly yes. If you look through all of Scripture, you will see this so clearly that when the will of the government and the will of God align, Christians are happy to submit for the Lord's sake. When the will of the government and the will of God are at odds, it may be costly, but it's not complicated. We must obey God rather than men. And what you will see throughout Scripture is this principle. Whenever the government forbids you to do something that God has commanded or commands you to do something that God forbids, we must obey God. So when you think about what does it mean to be in exile, like in Babylon, well, for the Jews it meant if Nebuchadnezzar and others tell you to bow down to the image, if you're Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you say, you're commanding me to do something that God forbids, namely idolatry, and I can no longer submit. And I will do it with dignity, fearlessly, with faith. God may deliver me. If not, we're not bowing down to your stupid statue. No way. Now, not only when they command you to do something that God's forbidden, but what if they 
forbid you to do something that God has commanded, like pray to him. In that case, Daniel says, I don't care what you say. When you tell me I can't pray to God, I must obey God rather than men, and I'll do it with the window open so you can see me do it to show I fear God, not your lion's den. And you get into the New Testament. What happens? You get a government that says we strictly charge you not to preach this name of Jesus, and the apostles say we must obey God rather than men. You are commanding us, you're forbidding us from doing what we were just commissioned by the living Christ to do. We must obey God rather than men. So hear me clearly. This means it takes discernment to know when does the will of God and the will of the government, when do they now clash? Where do they now oppose? When they do, we know what we have to do. I'm going to come back to that in a moment after we look at verse 17. After we put ourselves into this disposition that would humbly put ourselves under the authority of the government, then we think, okay, what do we do with our lives? How do we treat everybody? Verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This verse is a chiasm. If you would draw it, you would draw it like this. Honor everyone, honor the emperor. Those are parallel. And then there's a distinctive thing that we give to those who are part of the family of God, and there's a distinctive thing that we give to God himself. So if you walk through each of those, here's what it would mean. We start by honoring everyone. We have a disposition not just to obey, but to respect, to give dignity. So here, we honor everyone because everyone is made in the image of God, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, which means we're not treating them with dignity because they have earned it. We're treating them with dignity because they're made in the image of God who deserves all honor. Made in his image means we give them honor. And I love that he says be subject to, for the Lord's sake, to every human creature, including the emperor, honor him like you would anyone else made in the image of God. Puts it very clearly in perspective. Paul's words in Titus are so helpful to me here. I've, I've, I have felt myself to be so rebuked. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. That last line shredded me. Perfect courtesy to all people. You know why? Because as I look in my own heart and I look at some social media use, and I look at the social media use of my church, I think, oh God, teach us this. This has not come natural when people feel a little bit of keyboard courage and they start spouting off. A, a clever put down is a far cry from perfect courtesy. 
So here is the question. When we have this word doing its work in us, are we letting it guide us and instruct us and dwell richly in us in the way we engage in the political sphere? Okay, gut check time, all right? How do you talk about the current president? How do you post about him? Do you pray for him? I'm not asking if you agree or disagree, if you like or dislike. I'm asking you, are you treating him with perfect courtesy like the high king of heaven commands you to do? It's not about what I'm telling you to do, not about how you feel about it. It's about are you, do you have enough reverence for God to put a check in your spirit to say, perfect courtesy. What about our mayor? What about our governor? Not asking you if you agree or disagree with the way that they handled what happened when our city was on fire, when they, the way they handled maybe how slow they were to open church or, or maybe the, the command to wear masks. I'm not saying do you like it or do you dislike it. I'm not saying you can no longer ever voice an opinion. I'm saying are you treating them with perfect courtesy and honor as those made in the image of God? Or do you think that disagreement suddenly means all bets are off? If they don't agree with me, they're no longer made in the image of God. See, distance, you know this, right? Distance demonizes so that it becomes very easy when there's distance and disagreement to suddenly say all bets are off and I can just vent and you got a problem with the phrase perfect courtesy, dignity, show honor. Do you think for a minute that this was easy for Peter's readers? Some of you probably feel, whether you're Republican or Democrat, whether you voted for Trump or not, whether you like the governor or not, just when you have to submit and, and show courtesy and dignity to all of them, maybe just something rises up in you and say, this is hard. Do you think it's harder for us than it was for them? As Pastor Dave Zuger said last week at the South Campus, we can look at what these leaders did when our city was on fire. We're talking about Nero who set the city on fire. He did it. He was incredibly immoral sexually. I would tell you stories, but I know there's kids listening. Incredible, off the charts immoral. He not only set fire to the city, but then he blamed Christians and at very elaborate immoral parties, torched them. I mean, at this point, let's get a few centuries around us and think, you know, there's a big difference between being masked and being torched. It's hard, but it's not first century hard. Show honor to everyone. What about love the brotherhood? 
This would seem simpler. I would argue this is harder. Because he's not just saying, honor everyone, even those that you disagree with. They don't lose the image of God. Saying there's something extra and additional that you give, not just to those made in the image of God, but those who are in the family of God. For those who are in the family of God, it's not just dignity. It's not just courtesy. It's love. It's affection. It's family. It's we're going to be together forever. There's a different dynamic here. Which means if you are aligned with a political party, say you're a Republican, you actually have more in common with a Christian Democrat forever than you have with a Republican who's a believer, or sorry, who's not a believer. And the same way, if you're a Democrat, you have more in common with a Christian Republican than you do an unbelieving Democrat because you know your political views didn't save you. You're not saved because of them. There are people that you align with politically that live as enemies of the cross, that live their lives dishonoring and disobeying God, and therefore don't let somebody that that maybe disagrees with you on something politically Maybe they voted for a different person. Maybe they take a different perspective on the mask issue or whatever. Don't let those disagreements lead to demonizing them, lead to dividing against them, such that when Jesus says, I'm praying, Father, that they'll be one, just like I'm and the Father are one, and we're working against his purpose all the time on social media. If that doesn't put a check in your spirit, then I wonder if you realize all that you're dishonoring. When you treat somebody with something less than dignity, you're dishonoring the image of God. When you treat a fellow Christian with harshness and hate, and anger, you're dishonoring the family of God, the plan of God, the blood of Christ, the unity of the Spirit. We could just go on and on and on. What a sad commentary. When what divides us is far less than what unites us. You you know this politically, right? They treat everything like it's a first-tier issue when it's like third or way lower, but they treat it with first-tier passion. Peter's saying, don't, don't let differences divide the family of God. Love them. Love the brotherhood. And what puts it all into perspective is fearing God. Because if you fear God rightly, you won't dare want to dishonor the image of God. If you fear God rightly, you won't dare want to dishonor the plan of God and the salvation of God and the spirit of God that works to make us one. When everything else is de-centered, 
so that suddenly you're not like a a one-issue person on everything? Are you Republican or Democrat? Do you agree with this side of the issue or that side of the issue? When you center that, you divide the body of Christ. When you decenter all things so that God is at the center and you fear him alone, suddenly all these other commands start to make sense around that gravitational force. Because I fear God, I'm not going to treat you that way. Because I fear God, I'm not going to be snarky towards the family of God. Let me try to give you an example of what happens in our two-party system, I think. C.S. Lewis, when he was writing Screwtape Letters, talked about political engagement and how the demons would try to get people either to have cowardice or courage, either one. Cowardice, so that the Christians wouldn't be involved in the world, or courage, they said, even if they're right about things, let them have bold courage as long as it produces political pride. Because political pride will end up doing what our enemy hates, it will divide his body. Can we engage these things with political humility and dignity? What happens in a two-party system, I'm afraid, is that it's very easy to have a, a, a political party or issue. Those who disagree, we can demonize. Those that agree with us in authority that can really do what we want, we can easily deify. That is, we can put too much trust in those who agree with us, or we can give too much scorn to those who disagree with us. And what we're called to do is to have dignity. Here's an example. What would be a political posture of dignity for somebody on the other side of the aisle. I read this letter, this note, that President George H.W. Bush wrote as a written note to his successor, Bill Clinton. January 20, 1993. Dear Bill, when I walked into the office just now, I felt the same sense of wonder and respect that I felt four years ago, and now I know you'll feel that too. I wish you great happiness here. I never felt the loneliness as some presidents have described. There will be very tough times, made more difficult by criticism you may not think is fair. I'm not a very good one to give advice, but just don't let the critics discourage you or push you off course. You will be our next president when you read this note. I wish you well. I wish your family well. Your success is now our country's success. I'm rooting hard for you. Good luck, George. Wouldn't it be great if along political lines there could be this sense of dignity in civil discourse, rather than what it looks like today to me, it looks like it's now not an exchange of ideas, it's a form of entertainment, in which the goal is not to share ideas and discuss and debate, but to shame 
your opponent. It's like a, a gladiator match where what you want is to really embarrass them, to own them as it were. That is directly contrary to showing perfect courtesy, dignity, honor. Don't let worldly forms of entertainment guide your political engagement strategy or tone. Here's my bigger fear. Not just that we will engage in politics as those who don't have perfect courtesy, but that we will tend in our politics to lose sight of the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. C.S. Lewis said it just right. C.S. Lewis observed that all crimes of Christian history come when religion is confused with politics, and he says, here's what happens. Politics tempts us to trade grace for power, a temptation the church has often been unable to resist. You know when politics has become an idol, and you're no longer engaging in politics, but trusting in politics, when you have traded all grace for power, for being right. What does it mean to look at political rulers who are merely human and fear God? Best example I ever heard was the court preacher for Louis XIV. His name was Jean Massillon. Louis XIV died in 1717. He called himself the Great. And when he died, he wanted to make a public statement to everyone. So when the great heads of state and everybody files in to the great grand cathedral at Notre Dame, he gave them all candles. And they were all to have candles lit. And there was one other candle, and it was on his casket. And at the moment right before the... the funeral oration, the court preacher was supposed to instruct everyone, blow out your candle, so that there was one candle left burning on Louis the Great's casket to say, even in death, I still outshine all of you. What does it look like when the will of God and the will of the government come into conflict? Jean Massillon comes up to the steps of the pulpit, sees that candle, walks down, blows it out, comes back up and says, in the moment of death, only God is great. There's only one ruler that defeated the grave. There is only one ruler that in death still shines as the Lord of life. There is only one ruler who is before all things and in him all things hold together. There is only one ruler that created all things, whether visible or invisible, or thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, that all things were made by him and all things were made for him. And in everything that we do, we display that only Christ is great. I will bow only to him, and because I am in allegiance to him, I will humbly submit where he asks, always for his sake. 
all hail King Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us your heart. Give us your heart when you show love to those who are good and to those who hate you, causing your sun to shine and your rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Give us your heart to pray for those who persecute us, to love those who are our enemies. Give us your heart for your family that you purchase with your own blood. Give us your heart to love them and to be one like you died to make us one. And oh God, give us hearts that will only fear you, only obey you in that ultimate sense that we belong to you. You are God alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.